family. Yeah. You had to experience that lately? There are moments of sheer joy. We ride together to work. We're talking. We're connecting. You know, it's awesome. Uh, we, we're loving it. And then there's moments that's the complete opposite. Heidi's not here today, so I'll, I'll talk freely among you. <laughs> And uh, we, we bought, and I found her a car yesterday, and we bought it. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you. I, I come rejoicing today, at least in that part of my life, that we found a car that she liked, she wanted, because it's her car, and uh, we're a happy family again with two cars. You get so spoiled with that, too. You know, there are moments, again, where it is really, really cool to ride together to work, and, but then you're adjusting schedules, you're canceling things, you're figuring out all this stuff. Now, some of you have to do that all the time because you got a bunch of kids that are doing everything in the world, so I'm talking right now, and you're like, you have no idea, Ron, and I, I get that. I understand. <laughs> but one of the things that um, I struggle with in buying a car is trusting people that are selling me that car. Uh, because some, some of those people are liars, all right? <laughs> Let's just call it what it is, right? We thought we found the perfect car. It's way out in Sam's Valley. We drive out there to look at it. It's awesome. It is just kept clean. The guy told me, all I did, all I did was fix the bumper. That's it. Nothing else. Everything is good. It was beautiful inside. Had the right engine. It was the right color that my wife wanted. We drove to my mechanic. My mechanic, I always take it to the mechanic. I got a mechanic that I trust. When you find a mechanic you trust, it is like heaven, isn't it? Um, at least I think I can trust him. <laughs> We've been going to like for 20 years. You know, I pull in, I show him, and he's like, yeah, what'd this guy tell you? And i like, he just said he fixed the bumper. Like it had a little bumper, a little fender bender thing. He fixed it himself. And he's like... Yeah, he changed the hood, the side panel, the bumper, the grill, probably the radiator. I'm like, how can you even show me how I can tell so that I don't need to drive it in, you know? And he said, here's how you tell. This, this. He showed me all these things and Toyota this and all these things. And I went back out to the other guy and I go, what? Why didn't you tell me any of this? That's what it was, silence. <laughs> like... And you didn't tell me it was like this special, you know, readjusted uh, title. Now the bank won't even give me money on it. Now it's a big waste. Um, and so suddenly, something that I thought was perfect turned into almost nothing because I lost trust in this individual. Like anything you tell me at this point, I don't believe you. I don't know if I can believe you. Um, and I know there's a lot of things in life that probably that applies. One of the biggest struggles for me has been in relationships. So belief and trust, now we'll pinpoint a little more home, huh? Like, okay, the car thing was fine. This heart stuff, these kind of things, that's a whole different story. One of the ways that this plays out most, I think, is in our relationships. Even more, we find it in our, especially our marital relationships. So I understand this. Just uh, having been married a long time, all the ups and downs of that, um, if I don't believe and trust that you truly love me no matter what unconditionally, then it really messes everything up, doesn't it? How I operate in life, how I move forward, the risks that I'll take, the truth that I will share, the communication that we will have. And I've struggled with that with people sometimes, like really in, in like employer, employee, the moment 
like we've started to lie to one another or something hasn't come through or you haven't followed through on your actions. I don't trust you or believe you anymore. And it causes me to not want to have a relationship or the relationship is broken. The communication breaks down. All these things that can happen because of a lack of trust and a lack of belief in you. Now, some of you are dealing with that still. A lot of times, again, it plays out in marital relationships because of divorce. That person that signed the covenant with you one day said, I just don't love you anymore. What? Something that we signed up for. Now, sometimes I know there's reasons why that breaks apart. We're not, we're just talking now general now, but now how can I trust you in anything? Or, you know, when you deal with infidelity or it can play out in lots of areas of life, right? Like even with your employer, the moment that starts breaking down, everything starts falling apart. One of the things that will happen, I found, I don't know if this connects with anyone here, I wonder if it does, you don't have to raise your hand or yell it out or anything, but a lot of times when that, when that breaks apart, what I will do or want to do, struggle to do, is start to manipulate to make it work better for me. Or try to even play God in one sense and make it work for me. I'll try to do my own thing. Make things happen in my own way. I suddenly can become very selfish in it because I want to create my own agenda. Now I have to create a new plan because the old plan is broken apart. Now this can play out in a lot of ways. Does it play out in your life at all? Relationships, jobs, marriages, with your kids, Maybe it's some other area of life that you can look at. Does that play out in your life at all? Are you dealing with that right now in some way? Lots of people are. We hear stories all the time where it's just broken apart. And um, it's a sad thing. Now, we see that in Scripture from the beginning. God, the Creator says he unconditionally loves his people. And the moment I believe there is a real Satan, it's not some idea, there is a real evil, comes in and says, what? You can be like God. You can be God. Now the relationship, God doesn't really, he, he says it this way, kind of, he doesn't really love you, care about you. He told you, don't do that, don't do this, do this. And what he does is Satan manipulates them, and they in turn go, wow, we should be our own creators. We should do this. They, they start to lack a trust and belief in God himself. And so they do their own thing. It begins to break apart. We see that in Adam and Eve's kids, Cain and Abel, the way they do offerings, and then one kills the other. And we see that continually as a pattern throughout Scripture. Human nature is doing that. A lack of belief and trust in God causes us to be our own creator, do our own thing, make our own plans. And it causes us to come to a standstill or go the wrong direction. The relationship breaks apart. And we've seen that in the life of Joseph. 
this story that we began weeks ago and just have a few more left, we have just been kind of poking through it, looking at it from a little bit of a different angle at times, the bigger picture, the story of God. It's interesting. I don't even know if the story of Joseph is really all about Joseph. It's more about God and, and his plan and purposes in it than it is about Joseph. We have in the past turned Joseph into some, you know, uh, um, moral story to try to apply things about running from sin. And there's good stuff in there with that or big faith or whatever. But we've missed the big story of God and his plan in there. Man, Joseph isn't even in the line of Jesus. It's It's a great story that we've been working through. We'll look at that again a little bit today, but even in the, the last couple weeks. We see in the story where as a young boy, Joseph, man, his brothers hate him and he is dad's favorite. So it's creating big problems. The brothers in their own way try to manipulate and do their own thing and create their thing because this lack of trust and belief and now hatred towards their brother turns into selling him to some traders who in turn sell him into slavery. And God begins this work in his life where he places him in the house of Potiphar, one of the leaders in Egypt. He rises up. Then Potiphar's wife accuses him of rape. Now Joseph gets thrown into jail. He interprets some dreams. He's had that pattern in his life already. He interprets dreams for a couple of the guys in prison. They get released. One of them dies. One of them lives. The one that lives said, hey, I'll tell Pharaoh about you. We'll get you out. And what probably should have been just days turns into two years stuck in jail till one day the guy remembers when Pharaoh has some dreams and Joseph gets out of prison interprets the dreams God gives him this wisdom and he interprets these dreams of Pharaoh and says hey Egypt and the world is going to have seven years of famine that I mean a seven years of great you know, wealth and growth and then seven years of famine. So here's what you should do. Store up all this food so when we hit the famine, we're going to be fine. And Pharaoh says, well, we should hire like the smartest dude to take care of all that. And they hire Joseph. So he goes from like the pit and prison all the way into the palace. And then suddenly we saw the past couple of weeks, there's famine in the land. In the whole world. And so his brothers are sent by dad, Jacob, to go get food to bring back home. And the brothers get there. They don't recognize Joseph. He's on the outward, become an Egyptian. And obviously, years and years of growing up and having a family, they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them, and he kind of manipulates the situation a little bit, puts a bunch of stuff in their packs so it looks like they stole things, so they're brought back. He keeps one of his brothers, Simeon, throws him in jail and says, you need to go back, get your, the younger brother, Benjamin, bring him back before I let Simeon go. They're freaking out. They go home and tell dad. Dad's all mad and upset. And finally, last week, we looked and saw Judah. Finally, one of the brothers, one of the middle brothers, just is sick of it. And says, man, I will take responsibility. We said he, he rose to the occasion, stood up and said, we need to go get this fixed. They dealt, we said last week, with the elephant in the room. Something had to be done. And he stood up and said, let's go back. I will take responsibility. We even saw a picture of Jesus in that, standing up for us, 
Jesus saying, for our sin, I will take responsibility for their sin. I will stand in the gap for your people, for our people. I will pay the price. And they go back and they still don't recognize Joseph, their brother. And Joseph does it again. He fills their packs and all their stuff and Benjamin's with them and he puts the silver cup. We talked about that last week in Benjamin's sack. Then they go chase him down before they get home and say, you stole the silver cup of, the, you know, of Joseph, the, the prince, and they bring him back and they're freaking out. We're, this is it. We're paying for our sins. You know, God had been doing a transforming work we talked about last week. So listen if you to last week if you weren't here. And uh, they're kind of even you know, standing up now and saying, we, we did something wrong. And they're right at that point we ended last week. Joseph has not revealed himself to them. And they're freaking out. And he comes to this place where he can't deal with it any longer. Trust and belief had caused destruction in their family like it does even thousands of years later But God had been doing a transforming work in their life. And we get to this point in uh, chapter 45. We're going to look at 45 and 46 today. And we get to the first nine verses of 45. And uh, the brothers, they're in the palace there. They've had this amazing experience. You can read it in the previous chapters. They, they don't know that that's their brother. Joseph knows it's them. He's ready to reveal himself. It would have been an interesting thing. I probably would have done it a little different, popped out behind the corner, pulled off a wig or something like that. I don't know. Joseph could stand it no longer. Verse 1, there were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers. And suddenly, I don't know what it's like. I'm sure it's a big palace. They're back there. And he says, it's me, Joseph. Remember, on the outward, he looks Egyptian. On the inward, he is still one of God's people. Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. And then, at that moment, because he can't stand it no longer, when God is doing a transforming work, this emotion comes upon us at times. It says he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians could hear him. And word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers, what would you do, were speechless. Like, this is not happening. Remember, they thought he was long gone, dead. They had tried to manipulate and destroy even the work of God. But God cannot be stopped. God does not change his plans, even though he works with us who try to manipulate it sometimes, and you could say change it. God still holds to his purposes. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please, he said, come closer. They're probably back. Come closer, he said to them. So they came closer, and he said again, I'm Joseph, your brother. Look, look at me. Look past the appearance here. Look at me. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset. 
don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. Man, listen to this perspective. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. Wow. The famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and tell him, this is what your son Joseph says. He repeats it again. God has made me master over all the land of Egypt. So come down to me immediately. And he says, before we hit uh, verse 13, he says, come be near me. He's kind of saying it this way. Let's do life together. What a beautiful thing. What a transforming work in the life of Joseph. See how he doesn't hold a grudge, want to get revenge, but it's an invitation. Come be with me. Look at what God has done what perspective? Come, let's do life together. Let's be together. Let's take care of one another. Go get my father. So he says in verse 13, he says, go tell my father of my honored position here in Egypt. Describe for him everything you have seen. Then bring my father here quickly. And weeping with joy, look at what he does. Look at how, how transformation works. He embraced Benjamin and Benjamin did the same. But he doesn't stop there. Benjamin's the youngest brother. Benjamin is, has the same mother as Joseph. The rest have different mothers. They have the same mother. They're both connected tightly together. He wanted to see Benjamin. This is who he was connecting with most. But look it, it doesn't stop there. Transforming work doesn't stop right there. It says Joseph kissed each of his brothers and wept over them. And after that, they began talking freely with him. What perspective. The news soon reached Pharaoh's palace. Joseph's brothers have arrived. Pharaoh and his officials were all delighted to hear this. Pharaoh tells them then in the rest of the chapter, he says, listen, Pharaoh tells them, load up, go back. I'm going to give you all this extra stuff. I'm going to give you wagons to bring everyone and everything back. Get everything and come back here. I'll give you the best of what I have. Now, here's something interesting just to make note of. Right at this point, here is a Pharaoh that is inviting the Israelites, the Jews in, giving them the best of the land, giving them all these gifts. And hundreds of years later, what's going to happen? There's another Pharaoh that's going to want to kill them all. It's a big contrast there that we see in this story when we look ahead. Joseph sends them off, and there's a line in these verses, and he tells them it must have been an interesting thing because he knows them, and he knows the temptation will be there. He says, listen, on your way back, it's almost like he says, I know you guys. Do not quarrel, fight amongst yourselves along the way back. Go get our dad. Bring him back. They go back. Dad hears this story. He can't believe it. Now for so many years, he's thought his son was dead. 
And now he hears that he's alive, but not just alive, he has been elevated to a place of power and position in a way that no one could imagine, in a place that's not even their place, but their people. And so he's elevated back, he hears this, and he is amazed. We go to chapter 46, the first four verses then continue the story, and it says, so Jacob set out for Egypt with all of his possessions. And understand this, he has taken everything. Pharaoh has sent wagons and things to bring everything back. Everybody, we'll see in just a little bit, comes with him. So he takes all of his possessions that he's gathered over the years. And when he came to Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. He pauses for a moment. This man who in the past has not trusted God, he has been one to manipulate God, just like his predecessors, Abraham, and they, they try to manipulate God's ways and do their own thing. He struggled with this, but he pauses here. Here's the transforming work even in the father. When he came to Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. During the night, God spoke to him in a vision, Jacob, Jacob, he called. Here I am, Jacob replied. I am God and I am God, the God of your father, the voice said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make your family into a great nation. I will go with you down to Egypt, and I will bring you back again. You will die in Egypt, but Joseph will be with you to close your eyes. You'll be with your son. You're leaving. We'll look at this again in just a moment. You're leaving the promised land, the very place that has been declared, this is your land, you're going to leave it, but I'm going to bring you back. Don't be afraid. Do this. This is a good idea. And so verses 5 through 25 tell us in the story, kind of the whole process of them going back, and it lists all the kids, all the relatives, everybody, it lists who's going back with them to Egypt. And everything that goes Nothing is left behind. There is something about having faith and trust in someone or something, and we're willing to, you know the story, I'm not going to go into today, but there's the little phrase, burn the ships, burn the boats, leave nothing behind, risk it all, go all in. See, let's talk about marriage even just for a moment. When you do not trust your spouse, Believe in your spouse. And if it even comes down to the fact that you're not sure if they truly love you, you never really go all in. You're always leaving some loophole. You're always looking for a way out. It's easy then when the enemy can come in and go, hey, look it, here's something better over here. And there's many places where that can play out in life. But there's a point of faith, belief, and trust in what God has promised and said that says we are taking everything. And again, we'll mention it again in a moment, but they are leaving the very place of promise to go to a place in the opposite direction. And there are moments like that, but they are all in. And so he needs to pause for a moment and recognize who God is before they enter into this place of great faith. That's a great, great perspective for us. 
There are times before I make the next move, before I do the next thing, I need to pause and recognize and honor and stay connected to and be with the God who is asking much of me. And he does that. And then those verses tell us that they're all in. Nothing is left behind. We come then to verses 26 and 27, where it says the total number of Jacob's direct descendants who went with him to Egypt, not counting his son's wives, was 66. In addition, Joseph had two sons who were born in Egypt. So altogether, there were 70 members of Jacob's family in the land of Egypt. 70 people. This is from a promise. Again, I'll mention this again in a moment, but right here, this is important because this is already a nation being born. This is the result of a promise given to Abraham and Sarah in their very old age. Earlier on, Genesis 12 to 15, this promise comes up. And remember, here is an old man and an old woman who God is saying, listen, they have no kids. God says, go outside, look up. Can you count the stars in the sky? And he goes, I can't, there's too many. And he goes, that's how many descendants you're going to have. Too many to count. I'm going to make you in a great nation. We know, even declared today, are you a father of Abraham? There's, there's this still, it carries on thousands of years later. From that promise, we know that they had a child and it's turned already into 70. God made a promise. He followed through on that promise and he's already causing it to grow. And it, it's a beautiful thing there. So the two turned into 70. They head in to, uh, to Egypt. Joseph meets them. He sees them in the distance. Family and father reunion. They rejoice. They weep together. Dad can't believe it. It's my son. And then there's this little phrase before we end the story for today where uh, Joseph tells them, tell uh, tell Pharaoh when you meet with him that you are shepherds and that you need to continue that, that vocation. So you need this land of Goshen, this special place to continue to be shepherds. And look at what it says in the last uh, couple verses there of chapter 46. It's the, it says, uh, then he said, when Pharaoh calls for you and asks you about your occupation, you must tell him, we, your servants, have raised livestock in all our lives, all of our lives, as our ancestors have always done. When you tell him this, he will let you live here in the region of Goshen, for the Egyptians despise shepherds. And we've heard that earlier in the story a couple weeks ago, I think. And then the chapter ends right there. We'll pick it up next week. Um, but let me give you some thoughts for today. How does this, when I looked at this part of the story and was thinking it through a little bit, I'm wondering to myself, how does this happen? How does this happen concerning forgiveness? Joseph forgiving his brothers. How does he bless them instead of taking revenge upon them? Because it would have been really easy to do for him. It was. They probably wouldn't even have known it was him. He could have hid it the whole time. How does, on the other end of it, an entire family, a father, pack up 
And with great faith and great risk, pack up everything and everyone and go into a land where they've never been. And here's what's even more. How do they do that? Like, they're going away from the promised land. The very place that God said, this is yours. The very place where Abraham had planted himself. And this is it. This is where God is going to birth a nation, grow a nation, raise a nation that will last for thousands of years. And then one day, they pack up everything and everyone, and they say, let's go to Egypt instead. How do they do that? How do they have this great faith of listening to God? One, and I think it's for us today, uh, because I think God at times is asking us to do the same. For some of you, it might be a great uh, element of risk, a great step of faith. It could be a move out of the area. It could be a move into a new job. It could be the way that you forgive somebody in a relationship. The way, the way that, you, that you bless instead of taking revenge upon. Does anybody in here ever want to take revenge or get back at somebody? Could you name them right now, out loud? What about all the years of hurt? This is some serious baggage that's being dealt with here. This is a guy who was left for dead, Joseph, by his brothers, who was in prison for years, falsely accused, left there. How does he live this way? How does he have this perspective? How do we have this perspective in life? What if God wants you to make a move? Forgive somebody. What if he wants you to pack everything up and do something different? What if it's to leave something or someone to enter into something new? How do we do that? Number one, in this part of the story, we see that we need to have a right perspective of God and man. And there's a lot behind this. How I view God is very important. A correct view of God, his sovereignty that he is the creator and I am the created is very important. See, let me go back. When I don't trust somebody, and if I put it into I don't trust God, if I don't believe in what he says about me, who I am, my identity, or that he loves me unconditionally, or that he has a big plan, that he's working despite what's going on, the circumstances, then what happens is I become the creator. I try to manipulate and do my own thing. I try to make it work in my own way. And that happened from day one with Adam and Eve. The moment they had any bit of distrust in God, a lack of belief in what he said, and the enemy came in and said, you can do it, they started to manipulate and create their own thing. I create my own way, my own agenda, my own ideas, my own thoughts and belief system. And so how I view God is very important in many ways. But in this way, just the simple fact of he is the creator and I am the created. Now, this is not talking about creativity. So, for example, when we talk about church, um, there are times when we are told, we teach, be creative. 
But be creative according to God's plan, not your own ideas. So if we said, hey, everybody, all churches have the same mission, some form of maybe we want to lead people into an authentic relationship with Jesus. That's an all call, right? Be creative in that. Maybe the way you do songs or the way you set up the stage or the building or who knows. There could be a lot of ways, right? that we could do that. That's being creative. But the moment I set God's plan aside and say, I'm going to be the creator, I'm going to create my own thing, that turns into a cult. Because I have my own idea of what this needs to look like. So going back to the beginning, it's important what we believe about God. Now, if you don't believe he's the creator, let's, let's be honest. It changes everything moving forward. It does. Everything changes. You may believe some good things about the Bible. That's why somebody can go, Jesus was a good teacher, but he's not the creator. We could agree that he was a good teacher. But the difference is I say that he's the creator. That's why throughout Scripture we see this kind of thought and theme constantly in different ways. For example, many times we'll hear things like, from God, I am the potter and you are what? The clay. I, now this kind of touches on some things in big ways, but I form you. I work you. I make you and turn you into what I want you to be. Jesus will say things like, I like this part, I connect with it, you know. Um, I am the vine and you are what? The branches. But there are plenty of times when I think I'm the vine. And I begin to do my own thing, water my own life, fertilize my own. You know, I, I begin to try to grow things in my own way. And so it's very important that we see God is sovereign. And if we believe this and we look at it this way, it changes then when I need to forgive. This, this thought and big idea, so again, there's probably a lot more we can talk about, but this paves the way for repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, resilient and risky faith. If I believe he's the creator and I am the created, so no matter what happens, if Joseph, he does believe this, then it changes how he operated in prison, right? He doesn't say to them, you guys did this to me. I got stuck in prison for two years. I got put in a pit. I'm ticked, so I'm going to get you back. No, he didn't even, I mean, he, he acknowledged their sin, their stuff, but he still forgave them. And that thought about God being the creator paved the way for him to go, listen, you guys, brothers, come close to me. Let me weep over you. God did this to me. God did this. You didn't. What perspective? God did this to me. This is how Handing out grace overcame holding on to a grudge. Now, I don't have that capacity in me. I, I don't want to hand out grace. When I talked to the dude with the truck and I found out he lied to me, I was mad. Here's what God uh, I, don't, I don't know how this is going to like play out. You might have some, some things in here that you'd go, I would never have done that, or that was dumb, or whatever. But earlier in the day, 
I was driving down the street with my wife. We had looked at another car. It didn't work out. I was driving down a side street right down in the center of Medford. And I looked on the, I was real, going real slow. It wasn't like I was going 55 or something like that, maybe about 50. But <laughs> it's going real slow on a little side street right in the middle of downtown. And I look over and I stop. And Heidi goes, what, in, what are you doing? I go, there's no cars coming. I jump out and I pick up cash on the road. Some cash was there. She goes, are you going to call the police and turn it in? I go, let me look and see how much it is first. <laughs> so, so messed up, huh? It's 20 bucks. I'm not calling the police. It's mine. The creator placed it right there for me. So it's burning a hole in my pocket all day. I go out to this guy, which is way out in Sam's Valley. I go, can I drive your truck into the, into the place? You can trust me. Here's my keys to my truck. You can have it. You know, well, mine's better. I go, whatever. Just, do you, you know, can we do this? I go in. I look at the thing. I drive into Sam's Valley, and he points out all this garbage. So I'm like, I'm ticked off now. I go back out there, and I pull in, and I go, you, you know, try to be compatible. You, you lied to me, man. This is all like this and this other stuff, you know. And then I asked him some other questions. And then uh, I already thought I'll offer him some money for gas, but I was fighting it. I'm like, I just drove his, his car all the way into Medford. You know, it, it was low, too, you know, down there. And I didn't put any gas in it. And I was like, you know how I'll get revenge on him? I'm just not going to give him any money for gas. And I told him I probably would, but I'm not going to. But that 20 bucks was eating a hole in my pocket. And then I'm trying to convince myself, man, I did not use $20 worth of gas. You know, I want to ask him, like, I got 20 bucks, but can you break it and give me a 10 back? And I'll give you the 20 all that to say, it was like God going, do you think, you know, for me, it might not have been for you, but for me, he's like, do you think I place that there for you? I'm going to have to, like, work a little lesson out in you. It was not a blessing he gave me just to, you know, I think it really actually, actually was a part of my lesson of the day, which I need every day. So I pulled out 20 bucks and go, and I almost wanted, I wanted him to go, no, 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 everything's fine. He did not even say a word. He grabbed the 20 bucks out of my hand and said, thanks, and walked off. I'm like, what? What? Not even a thank you. <laughs> In bigger ways, if, if I don't have a right perspective of God, then I do want to get revenge and hold a grudge. And it will destroy the rest of my life. It will. It will destroy it. But this is how handing out grace, this perspective of God, Joseph has it. God, God's, the rest of the gang, are, they're learning it. That's how this works. This is how he forgives their offense. This is how Joseph said, come close to me instead of pushing them away. I mean, how much is that even a sign? Come close to me. Usually when we're dealing with this kind of stuff, get away from me. And he's like, come close. It's me. This is how he hugs them, kisses them, weeps over them, talks freely with them, and he doesn't just do it to Benjamin, the easy one. That's easy. That's his long-lost brother that he loved, that he longed to see. But he does it to all of them. This is how he heaps blessing upon them, not revenge. It's by having a perspective of God that says, you're the creator, I'm the created, you've got something going on. And I know along with that, there's a lot of work. This is not a snap your fingers. We talked about last week, transformation is a process that we go through, the sanctification. 
he says to them, God did this. He'll say things like, God sent me, see God's hand. God is in this. He's working his plan. He's the creator. I'm the creation. He says, God made me. He tells them the story of God. He takes them through, see what he did here. See how God did this here. See how he was working it out here. See how he's helping me save you for the future. See what God is doing. He told them the story of God. And so he's got a right perspective of who God is. Where are you at with God? What do you think about him? And are there times when you think you're the creator or because you don't trust or believe in him, you feel you need to be the creator? I'm gonna have to take over because God does not have this. He does not know what he's doing. I wonder how many times in prison Joseph dealt with that after two years, which should have been just a couple days maybe, turned into two years. What was it like when even though the 70 paused in Beersheba, this big family stops and says, we need to honor God here. And God speaks and says, don't be afraid. This is the right way to go, but we're leaving the land of promise. We're leaving where you placed me. How does he do that? How do they do that? How has God been working that? Listen, it's because they have a right view of God. I keep falling back to Romans 12, 1 and 2, the book of Romans, in so many places, fits so many places in our lives today. It says, and so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God, this act of worship, it, because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind we find acceptable. This is the, tray, the, the way to truly worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. A perspective of the creator that causes me to surrender my life to him and say, hey, I'm yours no matter what. And then that helps me make a decision according to what his will is when I do it that way. The second thing from this story I want to kind of, you know, give you today is this. I base my faith then on the covenant promises of God. So my move is based upon his promises. Joseph sees it. A promise was made. God's going to keep that promise. Joseph, or I mean, a Jacob responds to it in worship. We just were talking about that. And in going and risk-taking and taking everything and everyone with them, leaving God's promised land, moving in what seems to be the wrong direction, but it's all based upon a promise. God says, listen, you're going there. You're not going to go back there, but the promise that I made way back there to your ancestors, it's going to come true. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Go. It's the right direction, even, even though it seems like it's the wrong way. Go because I'm going to follow through with my promises, but it's going to be a long time coming, hundreds of years. See, here's, here's what I think God's purposes are often only known by his promises. But I think I need to understand everything when often I need to look at a promise of God that he's given us as his people and move that direction constantly despite circumstances. A move, risky faith, even worship is foundationally set on what God has promised and what, on what would be 
according to God's purposes, not necessarily what is at the moment. And despite the circumstances surrounding us. So even in a marriage, I would have been divorced many times if I went by the circumstances at the moment. But a long time ago, even though I was, and some would claim still, immature, (laughs) dumb, a long time ago, even though we didn't completely know what we were doing and why we were doing it, Though I don't even have great models in my life that showed me what I was doing, give me good wisdom at the time. We still signed a paper that wasn't just a contract, it was a covenant, a promise that said, you know what? This is a promise, so I'm going to stick to the purpose and we're going we're to continue to work this out. Even at times when I didn't want to, or Heidi didn't want to. I know there's circumstances sometimes where it's a different case, but in general, God's purposes are often only known by his promises. So I need to know his promises. These these people knew that. I even want to just, a, a little side note here, this is not a young man's game. This is for all of us in the room. All us seniors. (laughs) It's for us too. It's for you. And there are stories throughout the Bible where we could say old men and women are still making great moves for God based upon a promise. God is in, in all of this. He's preserving land and the people you know that when we look at that part of the story, the census, of, the census is taken. Seventy souls are on the move. That promise I told you earlier was given to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 15. A couple that had no hope of having an heir has now turned into 70 based upon a promise. Seventy ragtag, diverse, messy people making up the new family of God. It seems like they are headed in the wrong direction, but for a time, it's the very place where they need to go. I wonder for you and I if there's something like that. He is also preserving their identity. Before I come to just a wrap-up here, it's interesting uh, what was brought up, and I'd never really looked at this before. Um, The people are brought out right, of uh, the promised land. And they have really been kind of messing up even in that promised land. They've intermarried. They've mixed up. They've taken on ways that weren't of God. It was a little messy kind of thing going on. So here's, here's half of it. God is taking them, it seems, out of a place where they weren't being very successful on their own or trying to do their own thing at times and he's going to get them to a place back again where they can kind of be contained and resume the identity that he had given them originally. Now, 
uh, Joseph says, and Pharaoh gives them, you know, this idea. He says, listen, you're shepherds. Egyptians hate shepherds. So when you get before Pharaoh and he asks, where do you want? You tell him the land of Goshen. It's outside of Egypt. You are going to have your own place. You're going to be able to kind of resume the identity that God had given you. I think there are times that God puts us in places, even though it seems like it's the wrong direction, but it's the very place we need to be because he's trying to get us back to where he wants us to be. Restoring identity, who he's declared we are. Sometimes that comes, maybe it's like Joseph in prison. Sometimes it comes in hard places. But if we have the perspective that he's the creator, I'm the created, I embrace it as a God move, not a place that I want to get out of all the time and get rid of all the time. And maybe God is restoring something in me that I need. That could play out in a lot of ways, I'm sure, in life. So he's preserving their identity. God needs to get them out of Canaan to keep them distinct, to not lose their identity. They'd already been failing at this. And he even will keep them separate in Egypt, shepherds with their own land. And God in it all then at the same time can reunite his people. Are there times when he needs us kind of contained so he can heal us up? That he can do a work that he needs to do there. And so that just brings us to this last thing. In that, if that's what I believe, I have this perspective of God and man that's correct, and then I understand about his promises, then that's when I submit to God and his plan. Joseph has consistently dealt with his circumstances with submission. Judah does the same. He steps up and steps out, we saw last week, stands up for his people, does something that was not his responsibility at first, but he stepped up and did it. And the whole family responds. They leave nothing behind. They burn the ships. They're all in. It takes great faith to leave the land of promise. And in each case, these men, these women, this family is submitting to God. They have this perspective that says, God, you're in control. Jacob says in chapter 46, here I am, God. And God says to him, I'm God. I am the God of your father. I am with you. Don't fear. I'm going to do these things. God is working out his plan. He is showing his providence for them in this plan. And if I believe all that, if that's true, the worship team, you guys can come. We're going to wrap up with communion, some prayer, and and send you out with a blessing. But if this is true, God is the creator, I'm the created, he's working his promises out, he's showing his providence in it, then that is the moment that I say, Lord, I, I submit to you, to, to you and to what you want to do. This is how you forgive when you want to take revenge. This is how you keep blessing upon someone when you want to just slap them in the throat. <laughs> Not that you would want to do that ever. <laughs> This is how you make a great move of faith. And you say, here I am because you're the creator and I'm the created. And I trust you. Believe in you. So I submit to you. That's a big step for many people. Would you stand with me? I want to I pray. I wonder what your perspective of God is. I wonder today if 
Maybe you're struggling with some some understanding. Maybe the truth is you don't believe that he's the creator or you have doubt or worry or fear and anxiety or maybe some human aspect is being placed upon God. Maybe you're trying to be the creator yourself. Maybe, maybe like me, often I need to go back to the promises of God, the big promises of God, that he's working out constantly. Some of those covenant promises that he has made Are you willing to submit to God and his plan and all that, even though you don't know everything, even though you don't understand all the reasons why? Is there something or some place that you need to let go of, even if temporarily for the sake of God's bigger purposes? As we enter into communion, I think of Jesus in this. There's a plan right there. When sin entered the world, In the beginning, God now had an overall plan to take care of that sin so that we could have identity restored and be the people that he called us to be. And that plan was to send his son Jesus to be our savior, to die for our sin, to take our place, to stand in the gap for us, to forgive us of sin. And Jesus would do that throughout his ministry. He would stick to his plan, even though Satan and even people around him, his own disciples at times, would try to get him sidetracked, get him to go in a different direction. But he kept that perspective. He would say, I and the Father are one. This is what I've come to do. I need to keep doing that. It's even, you know, uh, like this submission so much that Though it would bring great pain and suffering, he would submit to the Father so much that he would still head to the cross despite what it felt like or looked like because he knew the plan was to die for our sin. Because he loved us, he would stick to that based upon a promise to save his people. It's why even from the cross, I believe with that right perspective, he could go, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. So today we want to embrace that by taking communion together. You take that little cup of juice and you say in whatever words you would like, thank you. Thank you that from the beginning to the end you followed through. Nothing would stop you. No one would change your mind. Nothing would convince you different. Love drove you to the cross to die for our sins so that we could be the people that you called us to be. You take that bread, and it represents often for me that submission part. Jesus submitted and willingly gave his body for us. And there's an element where I say thank you for that. And by saying thank you for that, I also go, and I, in this act of communion, submit myself to your plan for me, but even more for us, whatever that may be. And so I'm going to pray and give you time to grab some communion, take it on your own. There's some prayer partners at the back that can pray for you if you need prayer. I can pray for you up here as well. And then uh, we'll sing a song as well in that time. And uh, I want to give you a blessing to go, all right? So, Father, thank you so much 
for your great love for us. Thank you for being God, having a plan and purposes based upon a covenant promise. Nothing would change it. Nothing would get rid of it. God, you stuck to it, even working with sinful people through it. God, I often don't see the big picture, but it's there. I trust you, so I trust your plan and purposes. And help those today, Lord. Maybe someone is here and doesn't trust you, and they want to talk to you about it, or needs to tell you, God, some things, or ask for some help in that area. Wherever they're at, God, meet them right there. At the same time, Lord, we reflect on your covenant with us and say thank you for this act of communion. For your plan and purposes for each one of us to be loved by you, to be called your beloved, to, to be a part of your work, your kingdom, to have a relationship with you. We thank you for what you have done for us through Jesus, your son, our savior, going to the cross for our sins. We embrace that today and say thank you for that. And Lord, Jesus, as you submitted to the Father and paid that price, we in turn, those of us that are ready, submit ourselves to you to follow you with risky faith, forgiving when it's hard, submitting even when we don't have all the answers, embracing and weeping over. And Lord, some of us are going to need help with that. We thank you that you walk through that process with us and you put us in a community that helps us with it as well. Thank you for all of that. So again, be with us and, and thank you for your love that you have shown us. In Jesus' name, amen. Communes in the front and back. Take it as you will if you would like. Let's sing together in a moment and then I'll come and bless you.